Lord God, teach us to fear you so that we may know your friendship and so that you may instruct us in the way we should go. Amen. As a driver, I've been involved in four collisions I can recall. The first was near my parents' house while I was in college, driving at night through thick white snow, coming back home from Walmart. I was driving their Jeep Grand Cherokee, which luckily rode high and meant that there was little damage to their car when I somehow missed that the car in front of me was slowing down to turn left and we careened into its rear end. My brother's girlfriend, who was pregnant at the time, had ridden along, and thankfully none of us were injured. As it happened, I knew the person whose car I had hit, although I didn't know them well. Uh, their, their rear end was smashed, but I don't think that his parents filed for it. They said that it was an old car, and they were just glad that everyone was okay, their son included, which I think was like, great. <laughs> <laughs> In the second, I bumped into a car at a stoplight in broad daylight with no extenuating circumstances whatsoever. It was just, I was just plain distracted. The third collision was a little more interesting. It was about five years ago, maybe six. Um, Elizabeth and I had had some sort of tiff in, uh, at the house as I was heading out the door to the grocery store. And again, I was distracted, I was frustrated, and uh, I didn't check the rearview mirror before I zoomed our CRV out of the parking spot. If I had looked in the rearview mirror, I would have seen our Ford Ranger parked right behind me. Um, it asserted itself regardless, actually. Uh, I found it instantly difficult to be frustrated about our argument as I walked back inside to tell Elizabeth that I had hit our car with our other car. And I was pretty embarrassed about the whole thing until about a month later when my father-in-law hit the same car in the same spot. Misery loves company. In the final accident almost a year ago, I was rear-ended in traffic about three miles that way um, by a driver who was taking his daughter to school and he missed the stop in stop-and-go traffic. I smashed into my Camry's trunk at about 20 or 30 miles an hour. It was the first time I had ever filed an insurance claim. But none of these were as instructive as what happened two weeks ago when Elizabeth was hit in the Target parking lot by a young and suddenly very nervous driver. There was some bumper damage and the safety camera needed to be checked, but everyone is fine in the whole thing. And handling this matter was just another thing on my to-do list until I sat down with this week's scripture passages. And I felt a little bit awkward ever since. And I'm going to return to that car accident in a little bit, uh, but I want us to sort of unfold our way toward it by reflecting on today's readings together. The passage we read from Deuteronomy comes from one of a few chapters in the book where the Lord spells out blessing on those who follow the law, coupled with curses for those who don't. If you sat down to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy one after the other, as I'm sure you do often, uh, this is the, one of the things that really jumps out to you about Deuteronomy. It emphasizes that if you follow the commandments that are written in the law, 
It will go well with you in the land. Your children will multiply. Your fields will be productive. Your cattle will multiply, etc. And if you don't obey, then you can look forward to a life of barrenness and sterility in your family, your fields, and your flocks. In the economy that God was putting forward with Israel in Deuteronomy, faithfulness and flourishing are bound up together. It's easier than it ought to be for Christians to take up a version of this Deuteronomic principle, as it's called, and to run it backwards, to, to recognize that so-and-so is wealthy, therefore they must be doing something right. In its worst perversions, it can become a kind of prosperity gospel, wherein your faithfulness should be expected to play a meaningful role in growing your return on investment in life. The prosperity gospel happens often in the deep recesses of Christian TV cable programming, where slick-dressed preachers encourage us to, quote, sow our seed, unquote, with a small monetary gift and watch God make it grow in our lives. One of the reasons these hucksters keep making money is that their predictable script engages something that we already implicitly believe. The preacher's heavy golden bracelet dangles, pregnant with meaning, next to his hand resting familiarly on the crisp binding of a Bible. And this works because there is part of all of us that wants to see faithfulness and flourishing as bound up together, even in a material way. Most of us, of course, would deny that Christian faith is in any way a magic lamp. But I won't ask how many of us have seen the wealth of a neighbor or gotten a raise and called it blessing. The TV preachers are merely a symptom of this deeper theological problem. Now, I'm from the Midwest, and you would find it hard to shake me of the connection that I feel very strongly that there ought to be between a day's work and honest pay. So I may be biased about this, but there are at least a couple of reasons why we should see a kind of lazy appropriation of the Deuteronomic principle as a perversion of how we should think. The first is that the faithfulness that the Lord has in mind in Deuteronomy involves actively participating in a certain kind of economy. If you sat down to read it, again, something we all do often, um, you would see that Torah faithfulness means preventing generational wealth from concentrating in some families and crushing others. If you purchase another Israelite as a slave, it says, at the end of seven years, that person is free to return to their family. If you purchase a piece of land, at the end of seven cycles of seven years, that land is supposed to return to its family. And Torah faithfulness meant that a portion of your livelihood every year was to be dedicated to enabling the poor in your community to survive. You are to leave the corners of your field unharvested so that people can come and glean off of your land. And it meant that one day out of every week, everyone who lived on your property 
took a day of rest. Everyone, foreigners, slaves, donkeys, everyone. We don't have any evidence of this ever being actively practiced, but Torah faithfulness was also supposed to mean that every 50 years, there should have been an, a full economic reset in society. All debts, all debts forgiven every 50 years. The kind of faithfulness that God binds to flourishing is not personal purity only or piety only or general kindness or showing up to church and tithing regularly. This kind of faithfulness is a refusal to see my flourishing as in any way divorced from my neighbors. It's a refusal to blame the poor as though the reason for their poverty is a failure to grab their own bootstraps. If I am flourishing off the back of others, or if I hold on to my wealth in a way that prevents others from flourishing, this is a grotesque way to live. It may look like flourishing, but there is a real sickness there. So I guess what I'm saying is I would be more inclined to believe the TV evangelists if they told us more often that whoever has two coats should give one to someone who doesn't have one. And again, even deeper than that, I think we should be grateful for minor accidents or even larger financial interruptions because they can stir up sediment in us that allow us to see whether there is a sickness in the way that we're comporting ourselves. At least, that was my experience. But there's also a slightly more obvious reason why we should pause before assuming that faithfulness and wealth are bound together in the Deuteronomic way. We're not Jews, and this isn't Israel. And while the Lord is the same, and we do well to learn from, and even to allow our lives to be transformed by the stories of the Old Testament, we who have heard and responded to Christ's call need to keep reading forward and to see all things in the light of what Colossians calls the mystery that has been hidden through the ages and that is now being revealed to the church. Paul was himself dealing with a kind of hucksterism that had begun to take root among the Christians at Colossae. There was a group of teachers, possibly some kind of spiritual Platonist or some other kind of teacher who had begun teaching that real life, like capital R, capital L, was available through certain kinds of elite spiritual practices and radical bodily discipline and self-denial. Now we don't know the exact contours of what they taught or who they were, but Paul makes it sound like they were presenting genuine human existence as the achievement of the few, of those who put in the time and who have the right expertise. Paul has no time for this kind of spiritual snobbery. And he insists over and over that genuine human existence is any human life that has been swept up in God's reconciliation of all things through the death of Jesus. If you have met Jesus, he says, then the animating thing, the ray ipsa, 
the, the, the beginning of everything, the end of everything, the firstborn from the dead is ready to smile through you to the world, period. Anyone who wanted to achieve her or his own existence through effort is right to be offended at this. I would encourage you to sit down with Colossians and just kind of read it through. It's really short. In it, God's reconciliation of everything through Jesus comes off as like almost a practical joke on religious people. I mean, it really is. It's like, congratulations, you've been wasting your time because all of the work is done. All of the gap has been bridged. All of the sins are forgiven. After such an event as this, you almost can't help but feel like your life projects are a little bit arbitrary. Along these lines, I sometimes find myself thinking like everything has been reconciled. What do I possibly have going on that's interesting? After this, when you see the, right, the cross rightly, it should affect a total eclipse of everything else. So there was this fender bender, okay? <laughs> and when Elizabeth told me about it, I was ready to play the expert. Remember, like I had been hit less than a year ago in my car, and I was ready to go. Elizabeth had this person's phone number. Uh, I was ready to like start exchanging insurance with him. They took pictures before anyone drove away, and I got all the pictures together, and I'd done this, so I knew it was gonna be a whole round of phone calls, and I was like ready because all the information was fresh in my mind. But my mother-in-law suggested that if we wanted to be nice to this, to this guy, we might consider offering to get a quote for the body work and just letting him pay for it directly without getting the insurance company involved. He was 20-ish something. Uh, this was his first accident, and he was probably looking at his rates going up pretty considerably as a result of this collision. I was immediately skeptical of this suggestion because in my mind, I had a script written already for this event. I think the script was like what I had just done, but it was also a script that we all have a few layers deeper than the TV evangelists. Our society hawks its own kind of elitism, I think, about what certifies your right to exist. As Walker Percy said in his novel, The Moviegoer, in 1961. In it, Binks Bowling, who's the protagonist, jokes at one point that a library card certifies your right to exist. He might have been right in 1961, but I think increasingly it's not the library card, but the insurance card that legitimates your right to exist in America. Theologian Willie Jennings argues that the story that our society tells people is that they ought to be autonomous, self-sufficient, and productive atoms, atom, A-T-O-M, units, who only enter into relationships with other people by contract. And therefore, I should be able to be protected from the negative effects of any encounter that I didn't get to choose ahead of time. Think about it, illness, accident, maiming, flood, fire, even death, 
you can insure against all of these things. Insurance affects a kind of reconciliation to these things that allows us to feel like we've made a contract that renders them as safe as they're going to be before we get into those situations. And beyond just a vague concept, this idea of being autonomous, self-sufficient, and productive, for most people just below the surface, names what it means to be white. That's what it looks like. It looks like autonomous, self-sufficient, productive. Think about what it would be like to be hit by an uninsured driver. And then think about the driver themselves. Odds are, if we're being honest, most of us have a picture of someone in our head right now who's not white. This is real stuff. In all the recent conversations about gun legislation, I heard a story on the news this week about a man who was so in the throes of depression that his final act of meaning was to be productive. He made sure that his wife knew where his life insurance paperwork was filed before he went and took his own life. And of course, this is also a perversion of something. But for this man, the meaning of his life had become a question of return on investment. We want to be self-determining, self-sufficient, and productive. I was ready to play this autonomous Adam who would be duly compensated by insurance for the fact that another Adam had bumped into us in space. I don't mishear me. I do think that insurance has a right role to play and a wrong one, but at least a right one in our lives. So I don't mean to paint too broadly, but my mother-in-law reminded me that at the end of the day, this is another person that we're talking about. And the fact of his being a stranger doesn't release me from thinking about his flourishing. For the worst of, for the worst of my four car accidents, I was lucky enough to be driving on another person's insurance policy. Thank you, mom, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was even luckier for the fact that they didn't make a claim even. My life is materially better because that's how it went. Apparently I wasn't taking very good notes because in the last two weeks it was like I was gone. I don't know. All that is to say, hearing Jesus' sending of the 72 in the gospel reading this week was really disorienting for me. I'm over here juggling hats to try to figure out which of my modern identities applies in this car accident situation. And in the back of my mind, Jesus is confidently and strangely commanding 72 people to walk around the wilderness with no money, no social status, and no equipment to just go into towns and proclaim the kingdom of God. What? <laughs> but I think this shot across the bow of my mental politicking was a good reminder that whatever our situation in life, there is something about the sharing of the gospel that requires us to be empty-handed and dependent. This isn't just a one-off occurrence for Jesus. Sending people out like this is his way of doing it. Two chapters before Luke 10, he did the very same thing with the 12 disciples in Luke 8, 
Luke 8, Luke, beginning of Luke 9, I don't remember. Um, he sends them out just as unprepared as this. In fact, that was a success, so he did it again. <laughs> it's becoming a trend. The only thing that any of them had to offer to anyone who took them in was a word of peace. And if they were rejected, okay, they had something to do. They could shake the dust off their feet as a sign that this town has rejected God. But they still have to walk hungry to the next town. They return, of course, overjoyed at the success of their mission. And Jesus says how he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning from where he was watching their work. But this was more than a magic trick. The message that they were bringing, I think, required them to be dependent. Remember, the good news that they were bringing would eventually mean that Jews and Gentiles were supposed to sit down and eat together. Jews and Gentiles <laughs> were supposed to sit down and meet. It's hard to hear what that means. You can't announce something like that from a position of distance or authority. You literally cannot command people to be vulnerable in that way without having first eaten at their table yourself and needed to receive whatever they had to offer you. Really, you can't command people to be vulnerable at all, <laughs> and nor can you command them to be grateful. Those aren't the kinds of things that you can coerce. So this is a strange thing to announce like from a pulpit or from a position of authority. But Jesus, when he sends them, is confident that as the mystery of God's welcome is going to be wider and wider known through their work, the harvest of lives that are renewed in love and stories that are exchanged in gratitude, that harvest is going to be plentiful but we have to ask to be sent. Elizabeth and I were going back and forth over exactly how to talk to this person about the car accident. And in the final hurrah of my foolishness in this whole episode, well, it's not over yet. It might not be the final hurrah. But anyway, um, I was arguing that we, we ought to ask this person to pay not only for the damage to the car, but our car is going to be in the shop and we're going to need a vehicle, so they probably should pay for a rental. Uh, and I thought we should ask for money up front about that, just in case, you know. So don't judge me, all right? I'm not smart. But she judged me. She judged me quickly. She said, don't you think we ought to be living lives where it's possible to be taken advantage of sometimes? And I think that's right. Let me be clear at the end here. I'm legitimately not sure if I have the right response to what Jesus does in the sending of the 72. He is sending 72 people out with no material support whatsoever to live on the generosity of strangers, to share meals with them, and to try to convince them that a new age is beginning in human history. I am wrestling with whether or not to save a few hundred bucks on a rental car. So the irony of this has not escaped me. It's like absurd <laughs> trying to figure out how those things should respond to each other. Um, 
So there's a very real possibility that my hand-wringing in this situation is itself just a sign of sickness that we carry with us in the middle class. I don't know. But I think what I am confident about is that as long as Christians continue to aspire to be self-determining, self-sufficient, and productive, we will miss the glorious surprise that the apostles discovered by going needy into the world with only a word of peace. This is, after all, what God did in Jesus. He arrived needy. He had to learn. He had to listen. Have you ever noted that there are at least as many stories in the Gospels of Jesus accepting meals in people's homes as there are, and they're usually meals in the wrong people's homes, the wrong kind of people, as there are of him feeding people in mass. There are at least as many stories of him receiving the generosity of others. Could the same be said of us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.